Hi everyone, I'm your host, Daniel Lee, and welcome to OMD Daily, a podcast about investing in people. Every Monday to Friday, I share with you what I learned the day before from studying people and companies through conversations, whether it's through interviewing investors and business leaders, to reading books and financial reports, and digesting learnings from all the other storytelling mediums out there. The goal is to build my own PhD in combining human performance with investing to figure out how I can help leaders build utopian companies. By exploring my own curiosity, I hope to become a little wiser every day and hope this adds a little nugget of learning to you on a daily basis. Hello, hello. Welcome back to OMD Daily. This is the June 12th, 2020 episode, uh, episode 28 to be more precise. And so what did I do on the Friday? Well, I had some trickle over work um, from Thursday that I couldn't finish. And that became the Wix episode, episode 27. Um, so yeah, that was a more of a business analysis episode and being Friday and kind of being the wind down of the week as I decided to kind of spend more time reading and just taking long walks. Um, it's become a more of a compilation episode. I think the, the, what is that tradition so far in the last, at least couple of weeks has been that I'll talk about a bunch of podcast episodes I listened to. And this kind of took me down an interesting two-way street. So I was binging more on the Invest Like the Best podcast. Uh, that's run by Patrick O'Shaughnessy. And I just have all these episodes that I downloaded um, that I just wanted to dig into. And so two particular ones I listened were, one, one was with Sarah Tavel, I believe her last name is. Um, she's one of the partners at Benchmark, and her episode talked about marketplaces and consumer companies, and that led into her ref- referring a uh, paper written by or a blog post written by Andreessen Horowitz, uh, another venture capital fund. And on their A16Z blog, they have a article called Marketplace 100, where they have this full. They've identified these hundred top 100 marketplace companies that are B2C in nature uh, in the U.S. and is focused on private and startup companies, so no public companies, which was a bit of a disappointment for me because in my mind I was thinking, what's the point of sharing, talking about marketplaces if you're not going to include any of the large public companies? But I think it might have been the limitation of the data sets that they were using. Um, But yeah, so that took me down to that particular article that I'll talk about today and the second thing I want to talk about is once again I was influenced by the Invest Like the Best podcast where um, Patrick O'Shaughnessy was interviewing Jeff Lawson he is the co-founder and CEO of Twilio the communications API company Um, and I found I found it really interesting to learn about Twilio as a company I still didn't really fully un- understand what they did I think I have a better understanding now like they do they practically seem to run everything related to automated text messaging for like Uber Airbnb and like just kind of any major kind of consumer-based app that any kind of text message I get as an alert or any, any kind of automated like phone call like it seems that Twilio just runs the whole gambit there because they own this kind of huge inventory of phone numbers, which I didn't know was even possible. But yeah, so that's kind of a high level, extremely high level uh, understanding of the company. But what I found interesting was Jeff Lawson's focus on culture in the business. So I decided to find another article um, by First Round Capital um, that went deeper into the values of 
Twilio itself, which I found to be pretty interesting. So I'll talk about that as my second uh, piece for today's episode. So back to the first piece on the A16Z Marketplace 100. Uh, once again, all the episode notes, um, notes I took from reading all these articles will be on the main episode page. So I'll just kind of talk about some big, big highlights that I want to share. So I think the big things that were interesting for me was more so focused on like the large um, marketplaces. So the big marketplaces that were identified from this article focus on travel and food and beverages. So travel is really just Airbnb. Um, There's really no other startup slash private company that seems to be able to compete with Airbnb. Um, The other ones are just all the major hotel chains out there. And then it's the food and beverage market, which has DoorDash, Instacart, and Postmates as these three big players, um, in, at least in the private space that have yet to IPO. But DoorDash and Postmates compete with Grubhub and Uber Eats, the latter two being public companies, so they were not part of this data set, which makes me wonder what's the point of really talking about market share um, if you're not going to include these two companies. But I think one particular point that I found quite interesting was just on the identification of moats and thinking about competitive advantages. So the article talks about how Airbnb is this kind of runaway leader in the travel space um, and the kind of moat that they have in their kind of unique model of you know allowing people to put their res- uh, real estate properties onto this marketplace um, for other people to come and rent out of. Like they... It's a global network that they have. Uh, it's a singular global network where it kind of, you know, it's not focused on a specific city where Airbnb only dominates real estate in like you know, Vancouver, for example. But they have the largest reach globally and they have this massive supply that comes on. And that's not the case for food delivery companies like Uber Eats, DoorDash, and Grubhub and Postmates. And I learned that the advantage that one particular company might have in a very specific city, and it can even be apparently uh, narrowed into specific, uh, I guess, sectors of a city. So I think an example that I learned about was how apparently DoorDash targeted suburban San Francisco, whereas I think uh, it might have been Grubhub that targeted the urban part of San Francisco. So that the arrival to actually split the markets off. And so one company dominates the suburbs, one company dominates the urban areas. And I didn't think that was actually possible, but it turns out that's act- that is the case when they kind of own different sects of the supply chain uh, or the supply side. And that seems to be the competitive dynamic where there are a lot of localized um, dominance for each of these four food delivery companies. And what that means is that one's dominance in a particular geography doesn't translate to dominance in another. So I think the common thing that a lot of investors, at least in the public markets, like to do is, oh, yeah, if you have a, you know, they try to kind of generalize a competitive advantage and say, oh, you have scale economies, you have network effects. And they'll kind of say, oh, yeah, then this is extrapolated and say you'll grow into all these other markets and you'll be able to deploy the exact same advantage and it doesn't seem like that is very easily applicable uh, or executable for these 
food delivery companies because it's because you have to build and kind of restart uh, at each particular city and possibly even like niche down into various uh, districts within a particular city. It's just a very cost cost intensive way where there will also probably be a lot of price wars um, between the four major players. It isn't a winner-take-all dynamic like um, Airbnb kind of is. So in one way, it just makes it a very, uh, it just makes it a very difficult business for myself as an investor to even think about putting any kind of investment dollars in because it just doesn't seem very clear cut to me whether one, two, three, four, like if they will all like kind of you know emerge victorious. I don't know who's even gonna win win out over time, um, and yeah, this dynamic might not even be a winner take all dynamic. So is that even a market that I want to invest in, or will? Will it just be in a market where all four end up just kind of killing each other off because they go into price wars because it's so competitive? And as a, for a consumer, there really is no difference between Uber, Eats, DoorDash, Grubhub, and Postmates. Like, you know, maybe your delivery time is 10 minutes faster, but everybody has the same restaurants. And honestly, I, I just use the one that gives me more discount codes. And when I run out of one, I go to the other. Like, that's practically it. So that was something I think I kind of took away from this particular piece uh, i think another one oh actually before i jump off uh jump on to another one talking a little bit more about the food delivery market i learned that it's a 22 billion dollar market which I, I had no idea about it's not as big as i thought it would be uh, i think this is primarily just in the u.s it's a 22 billion dollar market um, i think given the hype and everyone's kind of excitement um over these kinds of companies i just thought it would just be something much bigger um like if i think about digital advertising i think you know these are in the hundreds of billions uh markets and so yeah i think it was a little shocking to hear how the market is kind of determined to be relatively i think not massive (laughs) at least given the amount of hype and attention these these companies that these seem to be getting and i think another part that um i kind of took away from this article was just on this kind of new kind of fast growing quote unquote industries. And so out of the hundred marketplace companies are identified, the fastest growing companies apparently tend to be companies in streetwear and celebrity engagement and wholesale. And so wholesale is kind of more focused, I think on the kind of indie brands and small brand um, local businesses, which I think when I think about public companies like Etsy kind of comes to mind. But there are other companies that are talked about in this article. Um, I think Fair was one of them. And for that, I think I can understand the value of kind of wholesaling local brands. But something that was intriguing for me was a company called Cameo, which apparently is a way for customers to purchase celebrity shoutouts for friends, family, and even themselves. And, a, you know, call you know, call me an old man for kind of saying this, but I felt that was a very, I don't know, the fact that that exists as a business and that exists as a super fast growing business was just very kind of, it made me a little sad for our our kind of society where like I'm, and I'm, I'm quite, I'm a pretty big advocate of um, pushing down celebrity influence because I just don't think, I personally don't think they're, know they add as much value to society like i can appreciate the arts i can appreciate what you know actors actresses 
I don't know what's up, you know, to like reality TV, like all they do. But I think right now we have a society that puts them on a pedestal. And I feel like there's a bit of an extreme um, admiration people have for celebrities that I wish we would kind of rein in a little. But these kinds of companies, I feel, continuously compound the problem that I believe is out there. So learning about that was kind of uh, disheartening in one way until to learn that celebrity engagement was a fast-growing market. Um, I think was not really the kind of news I'd like to hear for like, you know, a thriving economy for the development of society. Um, That was something that I learned that I was like, oh, hmm, interesting. Another thing was how streetwear is an extremely fast-growing market. I think that was kind of more obvious for me, but it might just be that because I have uh, close people around me who are either streetwear fanatics or they work in startups that work in streetwear. And it seems like this pretty massive... um, I first thought it was a cult-like following. Like I just didn't know that there would be so many... I just felt like, oh, it's probably just my friend group that just so happens to have people who would line up for line up for sneakers who are just obsessed with certain brands that just don't seem like any you know they're just not your traditional luxury brands like european luxury companies um but you have this t-shirt that costs you know two hundred dollars but it just looks like a plain white t-shirt but apparently it's made by some famous designer and it's, it's supposed to be minimalist and all that but it seems like there definitely is a much larger audience than expected, but it also makes me wonder about this the quote-unquote right-size mentality of these might be extremely fast-growing right now, but some markets are not supposed to be huge. Some markets are only supposed to be a certain kind of small size to fit a certain niche, and just because it's extremely fast-growing doesn't mean that it will actually ever get massive. And I wonder if um, investors for these companies actually ever consider that like as much as I like to be the optimist and think about how yeah like it could be massive and yeah look at all these times we were wrong about all these various markets you know like how people the cloud would be a very small market for AWS and look how massive the cloud market is now Um, how some people thought digital advertising would be a pretty small market because print would never die well look what happened now and I might sound like a dinosaur by saying that I don't know how big streetwear would ever be. I don't know how big celebrity engagement would rather be. I have a, I wish celebrity engagement would never be a big market. Um, I'm, I mean, if streetwear became a huge market, that'd be awesome for, you know, at least the people around me and how much they love streetwear. But I don't know. I just feel like there's continuously um, rose-colored glasses on that's focused on hyper-growth um, at this current present that may extrapolate how big the market could actually be. Like if we look at biology and animals, you know, a mouse can only be a certain size. You just, maybe you can get as big as like a capybara, which is, I think, considered like a rodent uh, in kind of the mammal class, but you'll never see a mouse as big as like an elephant, right? So there's always these kind of physical constraints that exist in biology. So I feel like that's also applicable in companies as well. But yeah, those were kind of the two major ideas I took out from this Marketplace um, article. It wasn't as kind of impactful as I hoped it would. I thought it would share more about Marketplace companies and kind of give me more uh, insight into learning more about what works, what doesn't, um, more of the competitive dynamics. But I think 
completely pulling out any public company kind of defeated the purpose of doing any kind of competitor analysis in that point. So a bit of a, I guess, not as much of a, it just didn't meet the, I guess, excitement hurdle that I initially had about the article. But anyhow, that was, those were my kind of key learnings there. Going over to Twilio's uh, learning. So this, I said, was inspired by the initial podcast episode with uh, Pat O'Shaughnessy and Jeff Lawson. And I think this particular article that I went deeper into with First Round Capital, um, I think they actually have a separate audio interview with Jeff Lawson on this matter as well. But it's all, all kind of focused on Twilio and the story behind their unique values and how Jeff thinks about culture. Um, I was curious. I think I looked up the proxy statement for Twilio because I was, you know, sometimes I feel if a founder or CEO is going to talk about a company, I need to know that they have some kind of equity ownership in the company because if they don't, I don't really put much weight into what they say because, I mean, what's the alignment there? And Jeff is the co-founder and he currently owns 5% of all the possible outstanding shares of the company. So that's inclusive of the class A and the class B shares. Class B are the uh, voting shares that are not sold on the public market, I believe. And as far as voting goes, he has just under 30% of the voting rights in the business. So I think that's a pretty decent enough ownership uh, and voting control for me to kind of take into seriously what he has to say about the company. And I think some pretty unique things about the values is, first of all, that uh, Jeff doesn't call Twilio's values core values. He believes the word, the term core values has been um, just used up too often and it doesn't even hold, it doesn't hold as much weight uh, and purpose as it did before because it's kind of become this convoluted term that everyone kind of sticks, sticks with like all, you know, every kind of fraudulent company has had core values and they've, you know, and like Enron's core values had respect and integrity and communications in it. So does it really mean anything? I don't know. It could just be that, yeah, like this was just one bad apple. And so you just got to learn to move on from it. But in one way, for me, it's more the indicator that Jeff is actually thinking very purposefully about how to think about core values, what to even call them. Um, and his even step-by-step process of figuring out what they would be was very, um, I think, insightful. And it it just makes me look at it in a different way where, you know, a company can have core values that just sound great. But I think it's, uh, there's, there's probably a good analogy that I'm just not able to think of at the moment. But it's kind of like one of those things where most things are average, but when it gets weird, it just sticks out as, hmm, this is probably worth looking into. And that's really what I felt with Jeff talking about his core values. So when I first heard about it uh, on the podcast interview with uh, Patrick O'Shaughnessy, he was telling me, about, like, Jeff was talking about how, you know, Twilio has these core values and one is um, draw the owl, which made me think, hmm, that sounds very weird. And he talks about how he designed his core value, his values. Um, he picks pur- purposeful wording that didn't use any of the corporate speak, like words like integrity, respect, like all that. That Like what does it even mean? It's just nice words that people just have on because everybody else does. But, you know, they have values like no shenanigans, which made me think, hmm, okay, th- this is different. It's a, like if I were to ever have, um, you know, a core, a core value, if I was running a company, it would be like don't fuck each other. 
like not in a literal sense, but more so, you know, just don't be an asshole to people. And I think those kind of things are very clear where, yeah, like, do you, are you, are you trying to, you know, are you trying to fuck with someone? Um, are you trying to be an asshole? Like those are very clear. Uh, those kinds of behaviors, they stick out. And I guess that can be incorporated in like, you know, have integrity, uh, be nice. But I think how Jeff kind of includes it in his company where he says like, no shenanigans, be humble. It, um, draw the owl, be frugal. These kinds of things I think are more, it's like real word, real words, um, that you actually say in conversation. Like you understand what it is and Jeff kind of explains that process. And so I felt that symbolized, that signifies something like it's some, in one way, in one way it's like weird, but it's a purposeful weirdness, which makes me go, Hmm, this is different. So it's worth looking into. And there's like various parts of the culture where like they, uh, I think Jeff's talking about how Twilio has like various shoes from customers who come to visit Twilio and they'll exchange the customer's shoes with Twilio shoes. And they'll, I think they have like a, they have walls with customer shoes, um, so that they can continuously kind of be reminded to, uh, think about being in the customer's shoes when they think about building the product, which once again, is just various things that a com- company executes on to build into their culture. And so the article from First Round Capital kind of goes deeper into this. Um, Jeff shares about the idea of cu- culture, how um, I think he says values are written words and your culture is how you actually live those written words. And so that's how he kind of compares culture and values. Uh, he believes that a company's values should be formed when you have at least, when you have about 20 to 40 employees, like it's something where you don't want to do it too early, where it won't matter because you need to form organically. But at the same time, you don't want to do it too late because at, by that time, it would have already formed. Um, culture is one of those things where it, every culture and values are one of those things where every company has it. Um, it's just, have you defined it and have you built into when you want to, or is it something that you just let happen uh, and you just have no control over it? And as a leader, you're just not, um, you're kind of just neglecting it. And so apparently when Twilio was building out their culture, I mean, their values, the process was they gathered 12 long-term-minded employees from all over the company, recorded some 100-plus ideas, cut the 100 to 25, and then to 10. And then they did what they call the oxygen test, which I think is a pretty cool model, where the oxygen test is literally to see which of these values could we not live without, i.e. oxygen. And what stuck were these nine things, and that's what they call them. They don't call it nine values. They call it nine things because, once again, uh, because Jeff believes the term values is kind of convoluted and kind of lost its meaning. And the nine are live the spirit of challenge, empower others, start with why, create experiences, no shenanigans, be humble, think at scale, draw the owl, and be frugal. Draw the owl, I think, is the most is the most kind of unique one um, because I don't understand what it means. And literally, there's kind of a backstory there. Um, we can... You, which you can kind of explore more in detail, but it's practically the idea of if there's a problem, like figure it out. Um, and apparently there's this meme where uh, there's, a, there's like a diagram of like, you know, how to draw an owl. And then step one is there's two giant circles. And then step two is a fully drawn owl. And everything in the middle is just kind of figure it out. And apparently that's kind of the idea behind um, Twilio, where that's how you should solve problems, just figure it out. 
And something else I think was interesting was how Jeff saw the role of leadership. And he references a story by Danny Meyer, who's a, I think he's a chef. And it's a learning that Danny Meyer had um, for restaurants where the analogy is of a salt shaker. And the story I think goes, um, when Danny Meyer was learning, I think the restaurateur that he was learning from would put a, sh- a salt shaker at the middle of the table. And he said, yeah, this is where the salt shaker should be. And then he would move the salt shaker away from the middle and to like somewhere on the edge of the table. And then he would tell Danny Meyer to put it back into the center. And so Danny Meyer would do this. And then the owner would then move the salt shaker to another part of the table. And then they would continuously do this over and over and over again until Danny Meyer kind of got tired of this, uh, you know, somewhat ridiculous exercise. And what the restaurateur taught him was how, was that, the job of the leader, um, whether it's the chef or the owner or the CEO of the company, is to always put the salt shaker back in the middle. That's It's not the job of the staff, like the employees or the guests that come to the restaurant. The guests will always put the salt shakers wherever they want. They'll place it on the edges. They'll place it on, you know, maybe close to the middle, but not so. Same for the um, employees. Like, they're not going to the ones that will always be reminded to pull it, put it into the center. It's going to be the owner that has to always remember to put the salt shaker in the center. And it's the idea that the owner and the leader needs to actually live the rules and the values and show excellence every day. And that you should never feel upset about the fact that no one will ever put the salt shaker in the middle and that you're the one that always has to do it, but rather realizing that you should be the one. And it's kind of like, it's not nice to have, it's, a, it's your duty to always put the salt shaker in the middle. And you have to lead by example in that way. So maybe when you do that over and over again, other people like your employees will realize, that, oh yeah, maybe I should put the salt shaker in the middle whenever a customer doesn't do that. Um, and then maybe a customer would also see that and like realize that. So I thought that was a pretty interesting lesson. Uh, it's a pretty cool model. And finally, I think something else that was cool is just kind of the last uh, of the nine things is to be frugal. I love seeing that in companies, um, just being cost, a level, a level of cost discipline. And it's something I don't think is shared often in typically like fast growing tech companies because they all like to spend VC monies and get fancy offices and people don't like working in companies that don't have great perks. Um, but apparently when Twilio's office was visited after it became a unicorn company, it was called, uh, I think the reporter called it like a dingy office with grungy beige carpets um and it had like weird smells because it just wasn't like a fancy office for a company that had like a billion dollar valuation and lawson talks about how he's just extremely proud of that because it kind of represents their value of being frugal um it's not about just being like extremely cheap but just a level of like being cost conscious where you're just not throwing money um you know to the wind but always being very thoughtful about how you're spending capital and once again, when you have a business uh, and a company that lives by that value, um, by having this kind of office, by having this kind of environment that doesn't scream like, look how wealthy we are, it definitely speaks clearly to the employees of what is important and what management believes. So those are a couple of things um, I learned. I felt I think this might be worth enough um for me to look into twilio as a company to maybe do a report on it um in the future possibly 
And yeah, as far as the food delivery companies go, I think I'm kind of like I've lost interest in all of them. Um, kind of a nail in the coffin. It's like, yeah, really price competitive. And they don't, you know, the idea of like local-based uh, dominance, but the way the market views them is that they're going to have singular global network dominance. So there's kind of a mismatch there. I'm like, yeah, I don't think it's that interesting for me either so overall that was kind of the friday learnings i wanted to share and yeah hope this was insightful hope this was fun and hope to have you back again tomorrow take care